You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Religious conservatives are always talking about traditional marriage. They support traditional marriage and they oppose all other kinds of marriage. But what do they mean by traditional marriage? All they mean is opposite sex. The gang at the National Organization for Marriage, for instance, doesn't care if a couple hews to traditional and archaic and sexist and patriarchal gender roles. The gang at NAM, the National Organization for Marriage, for instance, they don't care if a couple hews to traditional and archaic and sexist and patriarchal gender roles. Nam doesn't make a distinction between two socially conservative virgin Baptists who want to have as many children as God grants them and two atheist abortion clinic doctors who want to live in a femdom cuckold hot wife relationship slash lifestyle. So long as both couples are opposite sex, one man and one woman, both should be able to legally marry according to Nam and other defenders of traditional marriage. Only same-sex couples, a.k.a. non-traditional couples, should be prevented from marrying. So for Nam and all their religious conservatives, traditional equals opposite sex and opposite sex equals traditional, period, the end. So while some on the religious right are condemning Louisiana Representative Vance McAllister for having an extramarital affair, Vance is the guy, I'm sure you saw this on the news, who got caught on tape making out with a staffer in his own office on a security camera tape. Uh, Some are condemning him, but he deserves some credit for having one of those traditional extramarital affairs. The person with whom he was having his affair is opposite sex and all traditional means is opposite sex, right? Which makes Ted Bundy a traditional serial killer and a dude who rapes women a traditional rapist. Like you can just apply that word to all sorts of ugliness. If all it means is opposite sex, if we have traditional opposite sex marriage, you can have traditional opposite sex serial killing. Vance, of course, uh, is a social conservative. He's a Republican. He ran to – I'm reading his Vance on the Issues uh, placard here. Vance ran to fight Obamacare, investigate the IRS, oppose big government, protect the unborn, defend the Second Amendment and you know what's coming next and support traditional marriage. And of course, you can support traditional marriage and also engage in traditional adultery. Not that there's any proof that he committed – Adultery. His tongue was in her mouth. He tongue adulteried her. But uh, apparently no one knows if he actually got his penis in anywhere. But he certainly got his tongue in there and it looked like they were darting off somewhere to get everything in. Interestingly, in the wake of this scandal, uh, the staffer with whom the congressman was making out, Melissa Peacock, she lost her job. He hasn't lost his job and he is going to run for election again. He's going to run to be reelected. Uh, but she lost her job right away because she did something terrible. She made out with the married guy. But she's also married herself to a guy named Heath Peacock. And this really leapt out at me and people aren't really talking about this. But Heath Peacock gave an interview where he said, I'm just freaking devastated by all of this man. I loved my wife so much, past tense. I cannot believe this. I cannot freaking believe it. I feel like I'm going to wake up in a minute and this is going to be all a bad nightmare. Heath goes on to say in this interview, which is uh, I found up at Political Ticker at CNN, that it was just a kiss. That's all it was. But it embarrassed me and my family. 
This guy has turned my whole life upside down. And he concludes with, he has wrecked my life. We are headed for divorce. They have children, small children. Heath and Melissa Peacock have small children and they're headed for divorce because of a kiss, because of an embarrassment. These are all social conservatives. This seems to me from liberal, liberal Seattle and you know land of gay marriage and social progressives, this seems a little odd. Sickness and health, better or worse. Now, it doesn't get worse obviously for Heath than – seeing his wife make out with this potato-faced congressman on a security cam. But how is this grounds for divorce? How is this not something that if you're social conservative and you have small children that you don't tough out? Without even thinking straight to divorce, this interview came out hours after the news broke and the security cam tape went everywhere. And I get it. He was embarrassed. That is embarrassing. He was, as Wonkat said, mouth cuckolded by his wife. On television and that is embarrassing and probably mortifying and humiliating for poor Heath Peacock but Heath and Melissa have small children. Do you not suck that up? Do you not give marital counseling a chance? Do you not remember those vows that you all allegedly in social conservative land Louisiana take so fucking seriously? I've always been of the opinion that a marriage should be able to survive an infidelity. We should call it a Clinton when it survives an infidelity. That it is better to be the Clintons than the Sanfords, right? That we should – the default expectation when there's an infidelity, even if it was just a mouth infidelity with a congressman, is that you will work through that because it's so common. 60-ish percent of men in long-term relationships, 40-ish percent of women and, and those stats are evolving. They're actually getting close to, together. It's more like 50-50 now when you just look at younger people, people under 40. So women are as likely to cheat as men, obviously, in this case, women as likely to cheat as men. And knowing that, knowing that roughly half of everyone in a long-term relationship is going to cheat at some point, shouldn't we go into our long-term relationships, go into those sorts of commitments with an understanding that if this should happen or when this does happen, that the marriage, the children, the vows, all that more important than lifelong mouth purity. But that's just me. I guess I'm a social conservative when it comes to marriage. I guess I look at an infidelity like the one we saw, which was only from the neck up, and I think a marriage should be stronger than that. A marriage should be able to weather that storm. It doesn't help that it's a media shitstorm too, but a marriage should be able to weather that. And if it doesn't, if it can't, if your go-to place when you find out your wife kissed somebody else is divorce – Maybe you shouldn't have gotten married in the first place. Maybe you weren't cut out for the long, messy haul that is marriage. Anyway, to sum up, right-wing conservative Republican politician gets caught messing around with someone who isn't his wife. Uh, of course, he's a family values conservative who's defending traditional marriage with his tongue. One married lady at a time. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a middle-aged straight man living in Arizona. And um, all my life, I've been partnered mainly with bi women. Um, I have some sort of bi dar, perhaps as a result of my mother being openly bi, in a very loving relationship with my father for their entire entire duration of their lives. When I date people, I try to come out in front and say that I do like to be with bi women, and I do, in fact, like having threesomes in a kind of a semi-open relationship with a bi partner. 
the problem has been that with straight women that doesn't go over so well. I've learned over the years to try to make it clever and funny and a little bit more appealing, but even now I get into a relationship, I'm open about my little three-way fetish, and um, you know, two or three dates in, people start trying to say that maybe I should be thinking a little bit more conventionally, and then eventually, of course, the relationship fails. Uh, until I find that wonderful by a woman, <laughs> I wonder what your solution might be. I cannot be dishonest. I cannot hide something that's part of me. Uh, on the other hand, I would like to eventually find the right partner. It's a little bit confusing. I've gone for years at a time sometimes without having dates just to avoid that conundrum. Perhaps there's some sort of solution for those of us who are bi-friendly and want to be in that kind of a relationship but can't seem to find by a partner and can't seem to find a straight partner either. Thanks a lot. The first problem I want to address is something you say toward the end of your call, end of your question. You say you've gone years at a time without going on dates for fear of dot, 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 what? For fear of rejection, for fear that when you roll this out, you will be rejected. So all those dates you didn't go on, you did the dirty business of rejecting yourself first to spare that person sort of the time and the effort and yourself the humiliation of being rejected. And so you ensured rejection by not overeating up and going on those goddamn dates and then rolling out who you are and what you're interested in and facing either, yippee, I'm a bi woman who got out of my last marriage or relationship because my boyfriend, husband couldn't deal with me sleeping with women as well or uh, not into that, not into you, uh, right? Bad mistake, stupid move. Keep going on those dates. Keep rolling it out. That said – Maybe there's something kind of creepy about the way you're rolling it out. Even a bisexual woman who's interested in a male partner uh, that would allow her or be down with her, sleeping with other women or maybe having three ways, that may not be something that she wants to hear, even her, on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth date. Oh, yeah, you're bi. That's awesome. We can have a lot of three ways. You, a lot of bisexual women complain about that assumption, that attitude, there are bisexual women out there who are absolutely 100% bi but who are absolutely 100% interested in strictly monogamous relationships. And so you rolling that out even to a bi woman might get you kicked to the curb. You might want to let them get to know you a bit better before you lay that on the table. Remember, part of what people look for when they date is good judgment, right? Not perfect people, not geniuses, not – Adonises necessarily, but good judgment. And so things you may do early in a relationship that display poor judgment, even if that person's down with that in theory, the fact that you rolled that out in a way that demonstrates poor judgment, that itself can be the turnoff. Because if you have bad judgment about this, what else could you have bad judgment about? So you may be sitting across the table from a bi woman who's had three ways with previous partners and just the fact that it's the first thing out of your mouth on that day is a turnoff to her. Even if what she's looking for is the kind of relationship that you're describing, the fact that you're describing it before the salad came demonstrates bad judgment and makes you kind of a turnoff, turns her off to you. So let her get to know you. Take out ads. Get online. Get on OkCupid. Get on FetLife if you have a couple of kinks. Say that you are interested in bi women and into open relationships and then drop it. And then if you meet people and go on dates from those sites, that's already on the table. You don't have to say it, right? That's established. And then after you've dated and hung out for a while and fucked around for a while and demonstrated that you have good judgment, that you're good in the sack, that you're a nice person, 
that you're fun to be with and be around. When you get to that stage, three, four months in where you begin to negotiate what a relationship, what a committed relationship between the two of you might look like, then you can start laying these cards on the table. At that point, it is a good judgment time to say, well, the kind of long-term relationship that I'm interested in ultimately is with a bi woman and with some degree of openness. That could mean we have three ways together. That could mean you are empowered by lady friend to uh, pursue other relationships with women. Dot, dot, dot. Let's talk about it. That's the time. That's the way you roll that shit out. That demonstrates good judgment. And there are lots of bisexual women out there. According to one large and pretty comprehensive study done by the Williams Institute that found that bisexuals, quoting here, comprise a slight majority of the LGBT community, 1.8% of people identify as bi compared to 1.7% who identify as lesbian or gay. There are more bisexuals out there than there are lesbians and gay men combined. The reverse seems to be true because as other studies, Pew Research studies showed, bisexuals are a lot less likely to be out as we discussed last week on the show. 70, 80 percent plus of gay men, lesbians out to everyone in their lives. It's important to them. Less than 30 percent of bisexuals out to everyone in their lives who are important to them. So the bisexuals are out there. Go find them. Keep coming out about what you want. Make it a criteria on your OkCupid profile and you will find the bisexual partner of your dreams. And you are, remember, the dream partner of a bisexual potentially. There are a lot of bisexuals out there who want what you're offering. Go find one. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay white male, 41 years old, that is engaged to another man that is just an amazing guy. And we were talking about wedding etiquette. And we know your advice of fuck first on Valentine's Day. And we were wondering if there's any similar advice for your wedding day. Yes, definitely fuck first on your wedding day. Presumably you haven't been saving your ass hymens for marriage. And ass hymens, well, they're not a thing, but they can be a thing thanks to hymenshop.net where you can buy the magic artificial insertable hymen that exists to really just fool somebody who thinks they're having sex with a virgin when they are not. Anyway, you can go to hymenshop.net if you really want to make your wedding day super patriarchal, oppressive, sexist magic with an artificial hymen. You can do it even though you're gay dudes. Go to hymen shop. Uh, but yeah, you got to fuck first on your wedding day. Uh, if you wait till the end of the day, if you drink, you'll be too drunk. If you will not eat on your wedding day at whatever your party is because you have to bop from table to table and person to person depending how big your party is. And engage with people over and over and over again. You are so emotionally drained at the end of that day that you will have no energy for fucking each other. So either you guys fuck first on your wedding day or you arrange to have a couple of male sex workers come to your honeymoon suite on your wedding night and you guys just have to lie there face down on your heart-shaped bed and let them do the work. Hi, Dan. I'm 26 years old. I'm on the East Coast. Um, I've been seeing this really great guy for about a month. It's really new, and I totally might be getting ahead of myself. But I can really see myself in a relationship with him. Um, we had sex on the first date, and since then we've been hanging out. We spent a week, usually more than that, and we fooled around about half the time we've hung out. We were texting all the time. I thought everything was going really well, and then about a week ago, that kind of stopped. He's in therapy because of his ex-girlfriend. And it's totally in this weird headspace. And because I feel so comfortable around him, 
I just threw it out there that it was a little weird that we weren't hooking up every time we saw each other and told him that if he needed to have some space to focus on therapy, just to tell me. I haven't heard from him much since then, and we haven't made any plans for the coming weeks. I really want to keep seeing this guy, but I'm sort of panicking that I ruined it. Am I just being hypersensitive? Not really sure. So I was just calling you to tell you that this guy was never going to call you back, but he called you back. He did. And what did he say? Well, wait, where did I leave it with you? I don't even remember. (laughs) You left it at... We were seeing each other for a month. We were fucking around a little bit. I texted him, and I didn't hear back from him. Did I ruin it? Was I going too fast? Because you could see yourself in a oh, relationship with him, and you want to know I if, totally can. if that visioning that you did ruined the potential here. Based on what you said to me, I was going to call you and say, no, you didn't ruin anything, because there wasn't really anything there yet to ruin, because you were just sort of hanging out for a month, and it didn't work out, and for whatever reason, for whatever reason he's doing the fadeaway as opposed to you know, overreing up and sending you a text back saying, I'm not interested right now and thank you very much. But he called you back, so I'm my advice is wrong. He did. So, well, I, the thing that I was really freaking out about is that I asked him why he was asexual half the time we hung out. <laughs> I have to jump in and correct you there. A- asexuality is a sexual orientation, which means you're oriented to nothing. Uh, And so someone isn't asexual now and then, or they can't cycle in and out of asexual. It's like sometimes he was horny, sometimes he wasn't. Sometimes he's in the mood, sometimes he wasn't, right? It's not like he was asexual. That was my crude way of saying it. Okay. I I just don't want the asexuals Um, jumping on me because you said that on the show. I get that. I don't want them jumping on me either. I'm sorry, everyone (laughs) out there. (laughs) Yeah. So actually, we ended up hanging out last weekend. I guess I overeat up and was like, let's hang out. I hadn't, I had, you know, I haven't seen you in a week. And it was great. We hung out, like, with my roommate and his roommate, and we just kind of, like, cuddled. And he was like, oh, I was just trying to give you space because you kind of asked for it. And I was like, no, I didn't want space. I thought you wanted space. Oh, it's like the Um, gift of the Magi, except it's space you guys exchanged instead of a hairbrush and a watch fob. So where is it now? Well, we were supposed to hang out last night, um, and he got some weird work things thrown at him, so we didn't. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just, I mean, the really, the really big problem now for me is like, I still see myself getting a relationship with him, but he's in therapy and I've never dated someone in therapy. I've dated people who need to be in therapy, <laughs> but uh-huh. he, I just don't know. He gets like so in his head and I now I'm like worried that, you know, he's working through his, you know, this like breakup, this girl kind of just like pulled out like, the marriage engagement, like car house buying thing out from under him. And he kind of freaked out mm-hmm. and, you know, I could maybe see myself, you know, down the road there with him, but I don't know. I don't know if he'll like ever get there or you know, he's like, if sounds, I'm not the one that he'll get there with. It sounds like he doesn't need therapy. It sounds like he needs season, I think two of Downton Abbey. Because the same, the same thing happened to Lady Edith, and she just kind of, like, pulled it together. She stiff upper-lipped her way through it. And so can he. It sounds odd that he's wallowing like this. How long ago was this jilt that he suffered? So they broke up in October, but um, he found out in February 
that she had been kind of fucking around a little bit when they were still trying to get back together. Okay, so he's what his so, attitude, his attitude should be, and you can tell him from me, and maybe his therapist has said this to him, or maybe his therapist hasn't. That oh my god, you dodged a fucking bullet. You are well rid of her. Thank God she pulled out because she was not the person you thought she was. So this person who jilted you is not the person you were emotionally invested in because that person was a fiction. And so you need to thank your lucky fucking stars that you don't have a baby with this person. They're not married to this person that you don't have to go through the messy protracted process of a divorce to get this person out of your life. It's she's out of your life. Bullet dodged. Phew. Go fuck somebody else. That's all he needs to hear from a therapist. Yeah. I think she said that. I, it's really weird how open he is. Like I, I kind of just met him and all of a sudden he was trying to tell me about like his sad breakup thing that seemed kind of normal. It seemed like a normal breakup to me, but yeah. I, he just couldn't handle it. So, Do you think he's in good working order emotionally? Like none of us have to be perfect to get into a relationship, but we have to, we have to be good working order. You know, we have, we're all lemons to some extent as you know, we were all automobiles. But you have to run. You have to be a, a, a lemon that can run, a car that moves to, 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 be, right. to, to be something someone wants to drive. I, I can't, I'm torturing this metaphor to death. Like Izzy is good looking <laughs> order. We don't have to be perfect. You know, we all have our issues and our insecurities and our emotional sort of you know, hiccups, problems, pains. But is he functional enough for you to be this invested in him? Because it sounds like he was invested in this previous – woman who dumped him, who is kind of a fiction, kind of a projection of what he wanted a partner to be. Are you doing the same thing? If you've only known this guy for a month and he's kind of a mess and he's reeling from this relationship that ended only last October, so he has a right to still be sulking and sad, are, it sounds like you're also inv invested a bit in who he might be, that you might be creating a fictional version of who he is and falling in love with that instead of looking at who I, is standing yeah, in front of I, you. I hope I'm not doing that. Um, I also, I got out of a, a really terrible, way too longly drawn out relationship myself, semi-recently. Um, How old so are I'm you guys? That I'm 26, he's 25. All right. How long, was so he, how long I, was he with this woman? Three years. All right. Well, that sucks and that hurts. And you get, I, I think you get, you know, 10%, one month for every year. To like really be a wreck, and he's already had that twice. He's had, right. he's had at least six months to be the wreck version of himself, and now he needs to be Lady Edith and get through this. Get dressed. Well, and to answer your earlier question, like for me, he is great. Like, but he feels like he's uh, like a mess. He feels like he's not his true self. I think is what he said like the other day, which I don't. I just don't see. I think he's great. So that's what I'm. I don't. I'm just worried that I'm. You know, jumping in, and he's like kind of not really there all the and way. And you're going to be the rebound relationship, and you're going to get hurt again. That's what you're worried. Yeah, about. I don't want that. I don't want that. Okay, well then, don't date him because he's clearly still reeling. And if you don't want, you can't accept any risk of being the rebound, which is something we label a failed next relationship when it fails. You know, if you guys get together and it works. No one's going to, even though you are the rebound relationship. Really, you're just success successful rebound relationship. And there are successful rebound relationships out there in the world. Mine with Terry is a rebound relationship for me. Well, that gives me hope. So <laughs> it's a rebound isn't necessarily a problem. We just slap the rebound label on. Usually we only apply that label when somebody just out of a big relationship dates somebody else and it doesn't work out. Then you go, oh, it was a rebound relationship. As if all rebound relationships fail. They all don't necessarily. So you can be the rebound and it can work. But 
if you don't want to be the unsuccessful rebound, then you need to not date this guy because the odds, yeah. of this, the odds that this isn't going to work are really high. Not because he's a mess, not because he's sad about his ex, but because most relationships don't work out. Right. Almost all of them don't. Every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't. And you don't know which one that's going to be until you die. You're like, oh, that's the one that didn't fail, I guess. <laughs> so maybe I should just stick it out because I'm, yeah. I'm still really into him yeah, and then should, maybe you, he ends up getting hurt. Yeah, you should just stick it out. And you know what? Even if you wind up together with him for the rest of your life, you're still going to get hurt. <laughs> I love that people I, say, uh, oh, I might get hurt. As if the only way you ever get hurt in a relationship is when one fails. You know you get hurt in relationships that don't fail, too. Pretty much constantly. <laughs> it's it's not it's not a bug. It's a it's a fucking feature. Oh, <laughs> oh well, I'm dating this guy. I'm just afraid that you know I might get hurt. Well, then don't date anybody ever. Go pretend. Go you know pretend to be an asexual if you're not because it's the only way. Then you've got the hurt of being alone if you don't want to be alone. So there's just hurt every way you turn. So I'm just gonna go out there and get hurt. That's right. Dating, mating, <laughs> love. It's like. Lying in a bed of razor blades, any which way you move is going to hurt. Even sitting still, staying perfectly still, it hurts. All right. I'm feeling good. Good. Go jump into that bed of razor blades and give us a call and let us know how it turns out. Okay. Thank you so much for calling. Really? That helped? I, I think Seriously, that, yeah. Really? I think that's some of the worst, most depressing advice I've ever given in my life. Like One of the texts I've ever received is making a noose on the other side of the room for himself. No. I, you know what? I'm glad that I'm not the only one that's bummed out no matter what. Misery. We are all in this together. Single, partnered, sexual, asexual, everybody. It's all good and it's all bad. That's right. So have fun. Enjoy him while he lasts. All right. Thank you. Bye. Hi, Dan. I am a 42-year-old mom living in the Midwest with two teenage daughters. My oldest daughter is 15 and a half and about two years ago, uh, she came out to us, and we have, you know, expressed to her that we don't care about. We're we're very open to the fact that she's gay, um, accept her as she is, love her as she is, have done everything to try to support her. My question for you is: she has struggled a lot with anxiety and depression because of living in this environment that we live in, which is small town Midwest. And so she has struggled with depression and anxiety, is finally kind of coming into her own, is starting to come out to people, has really had positive experiences thus far for the most part. She's had trouble finding friends to connect with because she hasn't felt like she can be authentic with them, but that is changing. She recently found a best friend who she was able to easily come out to, have a lot in common, has started hanging out. It's been a very positive thing. Uh, that friend's parents are pretty religious, have decided that my daughter is maybe gay and have, have developed this paranoid, does our daughter and that girl have something going on and are not allowing the two to hang out anymore. My daughter obviously is very disheartened by that, is getting very cynical. My question for you is, how do we continue to support her? Um, and and stay positive. I I just am having real trouble. Number one with how to keep it in her head that it does get better, and number two how to deal with these horrid parents. I I do believe that their daughter is potentially either bi or gay, and as well, and she 
has to deal with these people as parents. I, I just, I don't know how to proceed. One with my daughter and two with how to deal with this kind of ignorance coming from outside with just without telling my daughter that people suck and telling these people to their face that they suck. I appreciate your help, Dan. Thanks. Tell your daughter that people suck. That is something that your daughter knows. That is something that your daughter needs to know that you know too and that you sympathize and you empathize for, for what she's been put through for this relationship that meant something to her that was a, a long time coming. Not, not even if it was a romantic relationship. She was isolated and alone for a long time, not her authentic self. Didn't feel like any of her friends were really her friends and she makes a friend and then these douchebag parents, assholes, pieces of shit terminate the relationship, the friendship. Yeah, some people suck. She knows it. She needs to know that you know it. She needs to know that you're there sometimes as a parent just to witness and acknowledge your child's pain, sometimes just having it validated, not in the sense, you know, that awesome, that pain for you, awesome, but just the validation of having your pain acknowledged. So acknowledge it. Yeah, they suck. This sucks. This town sucks. A lot of the people here suck. Tell her that if you had known when you were carrying her, who she was going to be when she was 15, you might not be living where you're living now. You know, I understand that not everybody can pick up and move uh, if their kids turn out to be queer. Sometimes there are cases, though, where that is absolutely positively what you did as a parent need to do when your kid was queer. There's a study that I think is really revealing that shows that uh, the less densely populated a place is, the more isolated kids are, the higher the suicide rate. That suicide rates among youth correlate very strongly with rural and exurban areas. Queer kids, kids, just period, kids do better in cities, in densely populated places where they have options, where there are lots of kids around. So potentially there are lots of kids like them. And your daughter growing up in a small Midwestern town full of shitty bigots doesn't have the same options, doesn't have the same pool from which to draw potential buds. Acknowledge all of that. Find a place where your daughter can go for the summer. Hold that out in front of her. Do you have a brother? Do you have a sister? Do you have aunts, uncles, parents who live in a place that has services for queer youth, live in a big, densely populated place that has queer youth support groups, that has queer youth organizations and dances where your daughter could perhaps go and spend the summer, do some volunteer work, meet some people, see the different world that exists that's out there for her. That could give her what she needs to get through the next two or three years in the shitty place where you live if you guys cannot move. And that can help. That can help her see that it gets better. As for telling these shitty other people, these the parents of this girl, that they suck, why the fuck not? They do suck and they need to be told that they suck. And they need to be told that lesbianism isn't contagious and they need to be told that if their daughter is queer, she's going to be queer, whether they – deny her her friends or services or resources or information that parental rejection and hostility can't make a queer kid straight it can make a queer kid dead family hostility takes a kid's already quadrupled risk for suicide if they are queer and doubles it queer kids with hostile families are at eight times greater risk of suicide why not tell them that why not tell them that what they've done made the world a little worse place for your daughter who's already vulnerable, who's already 
working through anxiety and depression issues and they made it worse and fuck you for making it worse on my kid and fuck you for making it worse for your own kid. Why not say that to them? What's at stake? What do you have to lose? They're not friends of yours and your daughter's relationship with their daughter has already been nuked. You have nothing to lose. And who knows? Maybe you will by confronting them in an email, in a letter, if you can't do it face-to-face or over the phone, you will plant a seed. You will create a crack, a fissure that eventually splits their minds open and then they will see the error of their ways, hopefully before they bully their own daughter to suicide. So tell your daughter people suck. Tell these people they suck. Make a plan with your daughter for how she's going to get out of there and tell her from me that there are so many adult queers in the world and alternatives and different people and poly people and trans people who grew up like she is growing up. Grew up in shitty little places full of small-minded people where there weren't a lot of options, where you were made to feel uncomfortable and unwanted every day because of who you were, because of who they were, right? As she is currently experiencing in this shitty little town. And after you're out, after you are gone from that place and you look back and you see That yes, you were an outcast, but you see clearly what you were cast out of, you're grateful. On some level, despite the pain, despite what was done to you, you are grateful. Because you will look back one day on that town and think, oh my God, thank God. Thank God I was an outcast because if I wasn't an outcast, I might not have left. And that was a shitty place. And if I wasn't different in the way that I'm different, I might have been pulled into the shit vortex. I might have become a shitty person to myself. But because I was different and I was cast out, I am who I am now and I am not a small-minded piece of shit in a small town making people feel terrible about who they are. I am gone from that place, that place that didn't deserve me. It's one of those paradoxes of adult sort of queer alternative different life. This place that you so desperately wanted to fit into when you were a kid and you couldn't and you didn't. As an adult, you are so glad that you couldn't and that you didn't. And after you tell your daughter that some people suck, after you tell these people, the parents of your daughter's friend, that they suck, you go look in a mirror and tell yourself that you're pretty awesome, that you're doing a good job, that you're a good mom to your queer kid because you are. And the most important thing any queer kid can have in their life is a parent in their corner. Not a parent who cowers and wrings her hands and worries about what the neighbors think. A parent who advocates and sticks up for them. And it sounds like you're doing that. And when it gets back to your daughter, that you blew up at this friend, ex-friend, this friend on hiatus, this friend on hold. When, you, when it gets back to your daughter that you blew up at her parents about what shitbags they are. Even if she says, oh, mom, I wish you didn't do that. Oh, my God, mom, you embarrassed me. She will be grateful. She will be glad. It'll help. It'll help her. You want to help her? Go blow up these shit bags. Tell them what they are. Tell them what shits they are. That'll help your daughter too. And another thing, it's really difficult to tell a 15 or 16-year-old kid who they can and cannot see or hang out with. So that these parents are telling their daughter that she's not allowed to see your daughter, fine, what the fuck ever. Your daughter can still hang out with this person. They can find the time. They can find the space. And you're there to help run interference for them. You're not going to rat out your daughter and her friend if they should sneak off from some school bullshit assembly to hang out for a couple of hours at a mall or in your house. Are you? No. 
So you tell your daughter that, yeah, maybe you guys are going to have to have to stay away from each other for a little bit to lull the other girl's parents into a false sense of security slash omniscient. And then you guys can start sneaking around. You can be Juliet and Juliet about your friendship. And there's nothing they can do about it ultimately because you can't tell 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids who their friends can be. And any parent who tries soon realizes that that is a futile waste of time. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old male. I'm in a long-term relationship with my, I guess, partner is the societal word. Uh, We've been together for six years, and we're very happy. But my question is about fantasy and role play, because his ultimate fantasy was always to fuck a firefighter. So a couple of years ago, I went so far as to buy an actual sledgehammer to go with my uh, DIY firefighter outfit, and I changed all the light bulbs in the room to, like, orange and red lights so it feel like fire. And I even got the sound of a crackling fireplace and surprised him on Valentine's Day, um, which he was appreciative for. But um, there's fantasies that I've talked about that he has not done the same kind of thing that I did. And I've, I've clearly said to him I would appreciate it or, you know, let's do something fun or exciting or new or interesting. And so I was just wondering, at what point, how, how do I communicate better that that's what I want? Like, for instance, I have a fantasy about him being much more uh, physically demonstrative in a like dominant way, because I'm dominant in our relationship, I would say, for sure. Um, so I'm sure maybe he's uncomfortable with that. I don't know. But it's something I would like to explore sexually with him just to have a change in the power dynamic and to spice things up. So how do I convince him that he needs to do something or, or that he wants to do something? Cause I bought a fucking sledgehammer and I'm still waiting for my fantasy. <laughs> so can you help me out? What's good about your boyfriend's fantasy that, that you fulfilled and good for you showing the initiative, you care, you want to meet his needs, your GGG. Is it so specific he wants you to be a fireman. He wants to have sex with a fireman. And you were able to put together a little fireman outfit, buy a sledgehammer, make the room look like it was on fire without setting it on fire. Good for you. Uh, and, and that's all awesome. But you were able to really do all of that. You knew exactly what to do because his fantasy was so specific. And your fantasy is so vague, Right. You ask him, I've clearly said, let's do something fun or a little different. Okay, maybe you clearly said fun or different, but fun and different are kind of vague and broad concepts. Fun or different. Let's do something fun, different. That's not, you know what, I have needs and I need you to meet them and here they are. Boom, 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 boom. You need to give him as specific a, a, a checklist as his fantasy implicitly Gave you. I have a fireman, fuck a fireman fantasy. There's a checklist. Get the hat, get the coat, get the suspenders, get the boots, get the crackling fire soundtrack, get the orange lights, get the sledgehammer. Done. You had a checklist. Whether He didn't hand you one, but you had one because this fantasy kind of has a checklist built right in. Your fantasy? I want you to be more dominant. What does that mean? I want you to be more dominant. I'm the dominant. I want you to... Show the initiative. Take the lead. What does that mean? You have to tell him what that means, what that looks like. You need to give him the checklist. If you had left a phone number, I would call you back and we would make that checklist together and we would make it a very specific one because saying to someone who may be a little shyer or more reserved sexually than you are or less likely to take the initiative, saying to them, be more dominant, 
be more fun, be different. Like that's not going to help. That's going to paralyze someone who's a little more sexually reserved with fear, fear of fucking up, fear of doing the wrong dominant thing. So you need to write a script for him. You need to write a checklist for him and you need to give it to him. And then if he doesn't do it, then you have a problem that you need to talk about as relationship problem. I go out of my way to meet your needs and you are not returning that favor. But right now he doesn't know what the fuck your needs are because what you've told him is impossibly vague. So get specific, make a list, a checklist and hand it to him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old white male, and my boyfriend of six years is African-American. And my biggest sexual fantasy is being dominated by an aggressive thug. And as I'm usually the dominant one in the bedroom and in our relationship, um, this can be a bit of a a struggle or a balancing act. Uh, My boyfriend is capable of doing this. He even has a voice for this character who we've named Tyrone, but thus far it hasn't ever really worked. Uh, We'll be in the middle of sex and he'll start laughing, which always kills the mood and I get upset if we don't finish and I just feel angry about it. And it feels like what I want is a joke to him. And I feel frustrated about it because I've gone above and beyond to deliver on his sexual fantasies. And that includes costumes, music, lighting, props, etc. Like, it's ridiculous. So is it pig-headed of me to expect him to be willing to do the same? even if it makes him uncomfortable. It's not that he doesn't like doing it or that he doesn't want me to have that experience. He has repeatedly said that he does. He's just the complete opposite of this character that was created, and he can't seem to stay in the moment at all. Should he bite the bullet and try to take it seriously, or am I asking for too much? And furthermore, perhaps most importantly, am I fucked up for wanting that character to dominate me in the first place? Is it any different than wanting an Asian girlfriend to dress up like a geisha? The last thing that I want is to be culturally insensitive. I just want to get fucked by a thug. You say that this fantasy makes your boyfriend uncomfortable. Answering this question makes me uncomfortable because what we have here is the white fag caller who has this a black boyfriend and a fantasy about his black boyfriend being this cliche, stereotypical thug character because you're you have this fantasy about being fucked by a thug. And you know the white fag advice columnist is going to give you advice about how to get your African-American boyfriend to act like a th- – social justice Tumblr keyboard warrior is going to have a field day with this one. Here we go. If you've only tried to pull off the Tyrone thing once a year and it derails it for you if he gets the giggles for a moment because he is pretending to be – Someone he is not and perhaps someone that it makes him uncomfortable to pretend to be because of what that might mean about how you see him and why you're dating him. So I hope that you've had conversations with your African-American boyfriend about the origins of this fantasy, what it means, whether you see him as a three-dimensional human being and that you're with him for the person that he is, not just the color of his skin as a prop in your ultimate sexual fantasy, that he's a person for you first and can also play this part, be this, you know, assume this role, this sort of archetype that is, it is of a piece with a lot of the kind of masculine, hyper-masculine, thuggy archetypes that typically turn on a lot of gay men. Marines, cops, sailors, truckers. When we talk about those guys as sort of archetypes that turn on gay men, sort of sexual archetypes, 
the thug is implied. Like they're kind of sort of – we don't call them thugs because usually when they're portrayed in gay pornography and a lot of gay men's imaginations, they're white, right? White Marines, the square-jawed all-American boy Marine. Not that Asian dudes and black dudes uh, and Arab dudes aren't also Marines. They're sort of thuggy and violent and usually kind of homophobic, which makes – there being a gay one who is acting out of this place of desire crossed with aggression and threat, that's what's arousing about those thuggish, homophobic archetypes. So that your thing is the – you know, an African-American iteration of that cliche gay male archetype fantasy figure is understandable. But I wonder if your boyfriend really understands it. I wonder if you're very articulate about it when you discuss it with him. I wonder if maybe one of the reasons he falls out of it and begins to laugh is not just discomfort with pretending to be this person he's not while he's fucking you, but discomfort with whether you're into the person that he is and discomfort around whether or not you really love him as a three-dimensional human being as opposed to a fantasy figure prop as somebody you can cast in this role. And you have to remember that you're asking your boyfriend to behave in a way that if he's sort of a well-educated middle-class African-American guy, he probably had people all around him throughout his life telling him, you can't act like that and be taken seriously, right? He, You're asking him to behave in such a way that the culture, even African-Americans – Will, have been sort of mow-mowing him about all his life not to behave that way if you're going to be taken seriously and in a way that a lot of people assume all young African-American men do behave. So it's really coming at him in both directions, right? He has probably walked down the street and been assumed to be a thug when he is not. And he probably had people all his life, teachers and parents and relatives telling him not to be a fucking thug, not to confirm that stereotype. And so this is – for him, perhaps really, really fraught what you're asking him to do. You should talk about all those things with him. Get to the bottom of all of those things with him. And maybe then he'd have an easier time play acting this part for you. But you got to own that these stereotypes about African-American men are really damaging to African-American men. Which doesn't mean that you are a bad person for having these fantasies. The things that turn people on, turn people on. Right? There are Jews out there who have fantasies about concentration camps. A lot of women out there who have fantasies, rape fantasies. Right? They don't want anything to do with a rape reality. But a rape fantasy, yes, that works for a lot of women. It turns them on. A lot of women feel terribly conflicted and guilty about that and they shouldn't. And so the question isn't whether you know, your fantasy is OK or not. Your fantasy is your fantasy. The, the test of whether you're a decent and loving partner to your African-American boyfriend is how you incorporate that fantasy into your sex life together. And if you can do it without dehumanizing him – and I don't know if you are doing it with, in a way that doesn't leave him feeling dehumanized because I haven't talked to him. Then it's all good and you should be able to get there. And you do have a little bit of leverage in that it sounds like you've gone out of your way to – Fulfill his fantasy scenarios, which sound a lot more elaborate and complicated than yours, which seems to involve just a voice, character voice, perhaps a do-rag. But you got to talk to him about it. You know what? I'm not the guy you need to talk to about it. You need to talk to him about it. And then if you're doing it and he laughs, 
you need to not let that shatter it for you. You need to be able to roll with it. You need to be able to – this is play acting, right? Sometimes people go up on lines. If you ever watch Saturday Night Live, sometimes people break up. Sometimes people giggle and laugh and they just keep going with the scene. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he's not trying to meet your needs. Don't pout and take your bat and balls and go home because he had a giggle. Just have a giggle with him and then, then pick it up where you guys laughed off. That's possible. And that's typical. Talk to people into BDSM. Talk to people into infantilism. Talk to people into centaurs. Often when you're enacting kind of an elaborate role play fantasy scene, there are awkward moments, things you have to push through. There may be a moment where people break character and then you just throw yourself back into it and keep going. And if he's willing to throw himself back into it after he has a giggle and you're not, then you're the one with the problem. You're the one who's derailing these scenes, not him. We're going to take a quick break from the calls. There are sex researchers and scientists out there working hard, trying to figure out what is up with our junk, our kinks, and our relationships. And every once in a while, one of these scientists or researchers publishes their findings in a journal. And then we invite them on the show to tell us what they got. Joining me by phone, Amy Muse is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Uh, she has a PhD in social psychology, and she studies relationships and sexuality. She's been a guest on the show in the past, and we're welcoming her back. Hey, Amy, so uh, tell us this time, what you got? So, Dan, what I got is some research that tells us that when people see something on Facebook that makes them feel jealous or uncomfortable, they're more likely to spend time monitoring their partner on Facebook. And I found that this is especially true for women. Um, and in some cases, men even avoid looking at information when they feel jealous on Facebook. So how is the, sorry, how is this not obvious that if people saw something on Facebook that made them jealous, they wouldn't then just dig into Facebook and monitor and spy? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is sort of obvious. But we were trying to understand why people do this, how they do it in their daily lives, and who it's more likely to impact. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that we found was that it's women seem to be more susceptible to this experience of creeping. So if they see something on Facebook or even feel jealous about something else in their daily lives, they're more likely to spend time monitoring their partner's activities on Facebook. And in some cases, when men felt jealous, they actually avoided looking at information. Because they didn't want that feeling inflamed? They didn't want it to get worse? They didn't want to know yeah, what they didn't want to so. know? Yeah, I think so. I think so. When I interviewed um, like undergraduate men and women a few years ago, that was one of the things that came up. Like men still reported feeling jealous and, and um, you know, not wanting to see their partner like interacting with other attractive people, but they were more likely to say that they would avoid looking at their partner's page for that reason so that they wouldn't have to experience that or see those kinds of things. Okay. So I have to ask the question that I'm sure everyone out there is, is thinking right now. What the fuck is wrong with women? <laughs> why, why, why do women want to torture themselves? The guy sees something on Facebook that makes him feel a little jealous. They go, ah, I'm going to back away from the Facebook for a little bit so I don't make these feelings worse. And the women throw themselves face first at their computer? Yeah, so I, but I don't think that it's necessarily a problem with women. I think part of the reason is, is because women, their relationships seem to be more important to them. You know, and that's something that women have sort of been socialized to believe. You know, that it's more important for women to have a romantic partner and all these kinds of messages that we get. So I think that's part of it. So and a, and a relationship success or failure is going to reflect more on her than him, right? Because she's exactly. the keeper of the flame, the tender, the nurturer. So it's her job to nourish 
and keep this thing going and growing. And so if there's a problem, she's the one who's charged culturally with fixing it. Exactly. What some women told me in interviews is that when they look at this information on Facebook, most of the time they don't actually think that their partner is doing anything. If they see them interacting with a person, they would say to me, it's not like I think they're cheating on me. I just don't want other people to see this post or this picture and get that impression, get the impression that I don't have a committed, loving, romantic partner. Well, so they don't want to be humiliated. They're worried that other people are seeing these posts too and thinking, oh my God, Susie doesn't know that John is clearly cheating on her with Marjorie. Exactly, exactly. I think that has a lot to do with it. So, what, But again, why aren't men concerned with the same thing? So we found sort of different effects across studies. So in a situation that we um, constructed in the lab where we actually triggered jealousy and then had people spend time searching on this sort of fake Facebook, Facebook profile, the men in that situation, they avoided looking at information. So they saw, when they saw pictures of their romantic partner with someone that was told to them to be a mutual friend, they actually felt most jealous in response to that, but they avoided looking at the information. But when we looked at people's daily lives and had them report on their actual feelings of jealousy each day and how much time they spent on their partner's Facebook page, um, jealousy was linked to um, monitoring a partner on Facebook, just not to the same degree that it was for women. So it seems like depending on the man, most of these, both of these strategies might be at play. So at times, feeling jealous, they may be compelled to go on their partner's Facebook profile, but other times it might be a protective strategy to avoid. So am I allowed to feel really tremendously morally superior at this moment or emotionally healthier in that I have never had a Facebook profile, so I have never Facebook stalked anybody. Well, you've never seen, I guess, you've never put it to the test, I guess, to see how it would be. If, if Terry was flirting with somebody else on Facebook and how I would feel? Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing about this research is that it's conducted on undergraduate students. I think a lot of the times they live apart from their partner. It's probably one of their first sort of important, committed relationships. Um, and so I think that it's also particular to maybe this certain stage of life and the type of relationship that you're in. Okay, so what's the takeaway here? What, what, what do people, what should people leave, if they would go and read this study, you know, what, what's the constructive real-world application here? Don't flirt with other people on Facebook because you're going to drive your partner crazy or get the fuck away from Facebook every once in a while, push away from the computer. What's the takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway is that Facebook has now become this other thing in our relationship that we might have to negotiate a little bit. So it's kind of changed the access that we have to information about our partner so we can get at things that we might not have been able to see before. It also is a place where people are sharing information about their, their relationship. So they might have a status or, or pictures, and partners might disagree on what they think is appropriate Facebook behavior, how much information they want to share on Facebook. Um, so it might just be something that partners need to talk to each other about. Um, one of the things I always find interesting is that we, and in the study we talk about this, that people refer to this as creeping. You know, you're creeping someone on Facebook. And so it has this connotation that it's this really negative thing to be doing. But all of the information that people are accessing is stuff that's been posted in a public forum anyways. But I think because of the neg negative connotation, when we see things on Facebook that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, it's difficult to bring that up because we don't want to seem like, you know, we're creepy creepers looking through all of our partner's things or potentially other people's things. So, yeah, maybe just talking to your partner about what kind of information you want to put on Facebook and how much you want to share about your relationship in these sort of public forums. So if there's anybody out there listening who's interested in reading the study, what's the title of it? Where can they find it? 
So they can go to the website scienceofrelationships.com and they can look up um, the post on Facebook Jealousy and they'll find information about the study and where they can access the full study. Amy Muse, postdoctoral fellow at University of Toronto, Mississauga, uh, PhD in social psychology. She studies relationships and sexuality. Thanks so much for joining us once again on the podcast, Amy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm a 21-year-old straight girl and uh, my question is, uh, about orientation. I recently joined the kinky transsexual community and I've had tons of fun here, but everyone seems to think that I'm a lesbian or that I'm bisexual and I'm not. I don't at all think that this is insulting and I don't really care much. I'm wondering whether it's a really something I should bother correcting people about or if that's homophobic or weird. Depending on what kind of sort of pansexual kinky community group or clique that you've become a part of, saying that you're straight could be taken one of two ways. It could be taken to mean that you are straight, that you are just sharing your sexual identity with the gang, or it could be misinterpreted as you panicking that someone might assume that you're not straight. And then people will jump down your throat about, oh, okay, so you're straight. And like, God forbid that someone should think you're bi or queer for five seconds. And they will attribute to you homophobia that clearly isn't in you. And they're just projecting their own insecurities and their own bullshit onto you. So what do you do? You just tell people you're straight. When people make an inaccurate assumption about your sexual identity, you gently and immediately correct them in a non-defensive way. If somebody says that you're bi or assumes that you're bi, you say, you know, actually I'm, I'm straight but I love bi and queer people and I'm down with everybody. And I'm a part of this community, period, the end. And anybody who has a problem with that is a dumb fuck and you shouldn't worry about what that person thinks. If everyone in this clique has a problem with that, when you share your sexual identity with them, find a new clique. Find a new pansexual, queer-ish, kinky community to be a part of because the one that you're in, if people react badly to you being you, isn't the right one for you. Howdy, Dan, from the old Pueblo in the desert southwest. While I have been a listener for some time, I am compelled to ask you for your advice. I have come to realize that I have a problem with my consumption of pornography. Recently, I messaged my best friend with a link to a page from a shock porn site that I have been visiting. While he viewed the link, he started a discussion that made me realize that I have this problem. It has made me realize that I'm obsessed with viewing pornography. While I no longer view that shock site and the thought of it now makes me sick, I have this obsession to combat the fact that I'm a 41-year-old male virgin. To help you understand who I am, I consider myself to be an overweight guy who would compare my looks to that of Kevin Smith just without the hockey jerseys. People have told me that I look like a football player that has let himself go. My weight is part of my self-image, and I'm actively changing that. For As an example, my heaviest was 362 years ago, but just today I weighed myself to be 302, so I am making progress. I listen to the micro version of the love cast sometimes when I'm working out, so it helps. Next, I work in retail, and, I'm unable, and while I'm able to make ends meet, I do not have any funds to go out. My friends have told me that this is not an issue, but I cannot see how I can find anyone where I, when I can get out there in the first place. I am working on this hangout where I've joined meetup.com for my local area, but finding meetups that I can go to is a challenge. 
Another aspect of me is that I'm a computer geek. While I'm not a gamer, I consider myself a maverick of iDevices, so the show The Big Bang Theory is a favorite of mine. I see myself as a Leonard type, but I have not found my penny just yet. To partially explain why I've been a virgin for so long, I am very naive when it comes to realizing that a lady is interested in me. From here, I have the fantasy that for my first time, I wanted to be with someone whom is a friend with benefits whom is hot and will be my partner for making myself hot for her as well, hence which is why I'm attracted to female fitness models. Lastly, I have the firm belief that once I find someone that will break this barrier I have over myself, that I will not need to obsess about pornography and finally get on with my life. Now, after all of this, my question to you is, what advice can you give me to help alleviate the stigma of being a virgin so they don't have to use pornography to combat it? Before I give you the advice I'm about to give you, I want to apologize to all the women on earth. I had a friend many, many years ago who was really average looking, totally average, uh, you know, a, a nice dude, a fine dude, totally average looks um, and, you know, nothing remarkable, you know, not a great body, um, not a repulsive face but just basically a face and he he always had the hottest – Girlfriends. He always betted the hottest women. And the other straight guys in his life who were also friends of mine would look at him and go, how did you get her? And he would look at them and say, I hit on her. And the, 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 the secret to his success was he hit on everybody. He hit on any woman he thought was attractive. He would walk up. He would talk to her. He, he, he wasn't a let. She didn't come across as a, a creep. He came across as smart and funny and charming. But he would ask them out. He would ask for their phone number. He would tell them he wanted to take them on a date. And 999 times out of 1,000, he got a no. He got a rejection. He, she wasn't interested. But one in a 1,000 times, he got into her pants. And that was the secret to his success. He would have two or three really hot girlfriends in a year because he asked out 3,000 women in that year. You could try that approach. You could hit on every fitness model type that crosses your path. Please be charming. Please be self-effacing. Please be funny. Uh, be direct. Ask them out on a date. Be gracious when you hear the no that you're going to hear 999 times out of 1,000. And who knows? Maybe we'll find the fitness model who's – Highest ambition sexually and romantically right now is a Kevin Smith type who's going to the gym, who's losing the weight, who has ceased consuming shock pornography and just wants a friends with benefits thing with the supermodel fitness model lady who could probably have anyone in the gym that she wanted. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you she wanted. And there are definitely women out there of all types who are attracted to guys your size. It helps if you have Kevin Smith's income and profile. Women are sex objects. Men are success objects. That's one of the cliches of mating and dating. So the fact that you work retail and you have a lot of money to throw around, that's an impediment. But it's definitely something that other people in your shoes have worked around. And you always have the option as a 41-year-old unconventionally attractive dude of looking around because I guarantee you there are women your age with your same issues around inexperience, around insecurity, body image issues because I hear from them all the time. And you could 
find them and date them. Settling down requires, in all cases for everyone, some settling for. And you may have to do some settling for. Yes, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all have female fitness model types or our, our ideal type, whatever our personal individual ideal types might be. But that's not always possible. Sometimes you love the one you're with and then you close your eyes and think a little bit about the one you wish you was or he was, right? And you know that they're maybe doing the same and that's okay. But that, you know, that's not a, actually the question. That, your question was you wanted advice about alleviating the stigma of being a virgin. None of the rest of it is really what you were asking about. Apparently, you know where to find the fitness models and you know how to bet them. So I'm going to back the fuck off on the fitness model front. Your anxiety or the, the stigma of being a virgin, as with all awkward things, you acknowledge it and you say, this is awkward, but this is a true thing right here. It's going to be a little awkward, but there it is on the table because it's when you pretend that the awkward thing isn't present or you, you, you try to cover for it. That's when it blows up in your face. That's when it gets worse. To tell someone that you're a 41-year-old virgin, to tell someone that you've actually never had partnered sex, the first time you're going to go to bed with that fitness model after you hit on a thousand other one of them says yes. When you tell that person, you know, I've actually – I'm a 41-year-old virgin and, and so I'm going to need you to be Catherine Keener for me in this situation. You're going to have to guide me. That's a reference to the 41-year-old virgin for those of you still paying attention. That person is probably going to go, oh, OK. Oh, awesome. Well, you know, let's – they're going to – if they're the right person for you to lose your virginity to, they're going to rise to that occasion. They're going to be gracious and accommodating and thoughtful and a little more sensitive to your needs and your condition and, and a little more forgiving about your ineptness. And everyone is inept when they start out, everyone, right? Then they would be if you were masking it. If you lied and let them assume that you weren't a virgin because you're 41 years old and who's a virgin when they're 41 years old or you lied to them and, and mis really actively misrepresented yourself and said that you had had sex in the past with other women or you had a lot of girlfriends, you had a lot of sex and then you were as inept as you are going to be those first times, they would be thinking, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? That's when your virginity at 41 will really be a problem. If you pretend that you aren't, if you try to cover for it, if you just hope that you can fake your way through it and they're never going to realize, they're going to realize. And it will be worse if they realize in the moment. Not that they'll realize that you're a virgin in the moment. They'll just realize that you really don't know what you're doing. And if they think that you've had a lot of sex with a lot of sex partners because you allowed them to assume that or you told them that and they lay there – thinking he does not know what he's doing, that's a much worse position to be in than you going into that first experience with someone and she knows you're a virgin. And so your ineptness is something that she signed up for. Your ineptness is something that she anticipated and that she'll be willing to roll with, that she'll see it as evidence of your basically honest, good character as opposed to evidence that there's something very deeply wrong with you. Lie to someone about the fact that you're a virgin and you're inept and they'll think, well, this guy is terrible. This guy's had sex before and, he, and he's making these 15-year-old mistakes? They'll run from the room. They'll never see you again. Tell them the truth. You can make those 15-year-old boy mistakes and they'll think, how cute, how charming, how lucky he for him that I'm here with him and I can help him learn and get better at this. So that's how you alleviate the anxiety of the stigma of being a virgin. How you land a female fitness model, I'll leave that to you. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a straight female in my early to mid-20s. I've been dating someone for over a year now who I'm completely in love with. Our relationships have its up and downs, and sometimes, you know, there are lulls, but overall our bond is strong. Three weeks ago, he turned 25, and two weeks ago, he told me he wanted to take a break. He said he's not sure he's in a place right now where he can be in a committed relationship or play the role that an emotional commitment to someone entails. What he described sounds a bit like a quarter-life crisis. He hates what he's doing, he hates where he's in school, and he kind of hates his job. He's having a really hard time right now, but I understood that he said he needed some time to focus on those things, and I deserve someone who can give me the emotional commitment I deserve. But he also talks about needing to meet new people and just get to know different personalities and experiences. I don't know what to do. I'm just absolutely devastated. He says Sadie wants to keep the door open to getting back together, but isn't ready to make a decision right now, right now one way or another. People I've talked to who know him say he does need to get his head on straight, just needs some time to get his life in order, and that one day our relationship will be so much stronger having had this time. Other people tell me I shouldn't put up with this, because if he really loved me, he'd want to be with me regardless of everything else, plain and simple. Is it a red flag that he's feeling suffocated now that he'll always feel this way in a long-term relationship? I want to support him in the ways he needs. I think he's so special, and I'm scared he's going to slip away. Everyone tells me to take time to myself, but I'm pretty confident with who I am, and I'm in grad school, so I don't necessarily have time to learn a new hobby or whatever someone is supposed to do. I'm also smart and just not very impressed with a lot of people, and I know something good when I found it. So what do I do, Dan? How do I get through this time? Here's what you do. You abduct him, and you keep him locked in a box in your basement for the rest of his life. Uh, that's your only option if you want to be with him. He dumped you. You have been dumped. I hate to be cold about this. You're in grad school. You're a smart person. Um, I'm not sure I'm in a place right now where I can be in a relationship. I need da, 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 blah, blah, blah. White lies that people tell people that they've dated for a while and wish to break up with ostensibly to spare their feelings and most people hear that, not in a place right now, not ready right now, can't have a commitment right now and they they read between the, the line, they read between the lines. They, they, re, they put the white lies through the autocorrect and they hear it's over and I'm dumping you and they may pretend to go along with the lies. OK, well, if you want to call me in a year uh, – but they know that they've been dumped. You somehow don't know that you've been dumped. You've been dumped. It's over. He doesn't want to be with you. He's blaming it on life circumstances and maybe he's the one in a million who that's absolutely true, that you are the right one for him. You are perfect. He really wants to be with you but he's just so busy. He's got to balance his checkbook and right now is not the right time for a relationship. Maybe he's the exception but really, really doubt it. You have been dumped. I am sorry. That must be very painful to hear. He was hoping that you would hear it without him having to say it. So I'm having to say it for him. Get out there, find other guys, date other guys, don't sit at home alone waiting for him to call. Stop listening to your mutual friends who are telling you whatever it is that they're telling you because they're full of fucking shit and get on with your life and your life is going to go on without him. Hey, Dan. 27-year-old guy here calling from Texas. I have a question about photography and etiquette and that kind of thing. So uh, uh, me and this supposedly straight friend of mine, uh, I got super drunk the other night and uh, went back to his place and uh, uh, we hooked up. 
that was fine, and that was fun. Pretty sure it's the type of thing that's not going to happen again. Uh, he kind of freaked out and got super weirded out by the whole experience. Uh, he's either a gay guy or if he's one of the two, he's super, super closeted. In any case, after we both came, he fell asleep on the bed naked. Um, I was still awake. Before I left for the night, I, uh, I snapped a few photos on my phone, and uh, I've, I've kept them there. So my question is, uh, am I violating his privacy or anything of that nature by keeping these photographs on my phone? I obviously not intending to spread them everywhere else or for my own personal enjoyment. Part of me wants to delete them. Part of me wants to, you know, lock them up, keep them password protected, super safe so they don't get out. I'm not really sure. Uh, hoping for your advice. According to my dog-eared, much-loved, battered copy of Emily Post's Etiquette, uh, it violates the tenets of photography etiquette to take pictures, nude pictures of someone else when they're asleep or passed out in your apartment and keep them for your own personal enjoyment. It is not okay. You have got to delete those photographs. Perhaps if he – when you were drunk and you were getting it on and he was having this sexual adventure, if you had asked, he might have said yes – I doubt it. He's certainly not going to retroactively give you permission. He's going to feel really very violated if you go to him and say, I have these pictures. And the thing about, you know, passwords and keep them super safe and locked down is, yeah, the best of intentions, but shit has a way of getting out there. And you don't know if you're ever going to lose your phone. If you sync your phone with your computer and those pictures are uploaded to your iPhotos, what if you lose your computer? Who knows, like two, three years down the line, there may be some online computer virus that just searches out photographs that have flesh in them and steals them from people's computers and phones and those photos could get out into the wild and he may find them and see that they were taken at this time in your apartment that he either looks back on with great fondness and then finding the photographs will ruin the memories for him or he may feel really, really violated once those pictures surface if indeed they ever do. The only way to make sure they never do is to de-fucking-leet them. Please, now. Emily Post and I agree on this. Hi, I'm calling because you've mentioned on the podcast several times that herpes isn't a big deal, and that's about the extent of it. And I've never actually heard anyone call in and say, you know, personally say they have it and it's really not a big deal. So um, I was wondering maybe if callers could come in and uh, call in and say it didn't ruin their lives and, it, you know, it, it's totally fine. I don't even have herpes. I'm just terrified of getting it and there's a social stigma. So I think it would just kind of probably make people feel better if they heard some stories. Almost like an, it's, it, it gets better <laughs> or it'll be fine kind of thing. But um, thanks. Usually when someone calls the show with a question that touches on herpes, it's because herpes is a problem for them in their lives. The folks for whom, who have herpes and it's not a problem for them aren't going to call the show that is about helping you with your problems. But you're right. We've said herpes is not a big deal, but we haven't heard from people who have herpes who don't regard it as a big deal in their own lives. So if you're out there and you're listening and you have herpes and it is not a big deal, and it's important to remember that most people who have herpes don't know they have it. They're unaware that they were ever exposed or infected. They had one outbreak perhaps that they didn't even notice. And so obviously for these people, 
you know, perhaps the people for whom herpes is the least big a deal are the people who have it and don't know it, and we're not going to hear from them. But if you are listening and you have herpes and you've conquered the stigma and you realize now that it is not a big deal and it hasn't negatively impacted your life too greatly, give us a call and share your story, 206-201-2720. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about your opening on episode 389 about the Mozilla CEO. I think another big issue that the conservative hypocrites that are fine with gay employees being fired is that they're fine seeing a regular employee being fired, but when a CEO loses his job because of what little people think, that gets them up in arms because it's also a class issue. And it's fine to piss on the little people, but when the big people have to be held to the same values, they don't like that at all. Hi, Dan. Let me try to make you feel a little less hand-wringy about the whole Brendan Ike, Mozilla CEO situation. Mozilla is a relatively weak company in a crazy competitive industry. It's competitive for customers and for talent. And Ike wasn't just some engineer. He was going to be the public face of a company at a critical moment. And when it became clear that the public face of that company had taken positions that put a vulnerable company at a further disadvantage in terms of winning both customers and talented employees, what happened wasn't the work of a gay mafia or liberal orthodoxy. It was the work of capitalism. This was the not-so-invisible hand of the market, you know, the one that conservatives love more than they actually love Jesus. This is going to continue to happen, and I think it's really important that no one apologize for it. It's not a free speech issue in the slightest. Ike is free to speak, and the markets for electronic stuff and for ideas will value him accordingly. And that's, what, that's exactly what happened here. No reason to apologize. Hi, this is for the woman in episode 389 last week who had fallen for her very good friend. Several years ago, I fell in love with my best friend, and it was really hard. We had an open and honest conversation about it, which was very difficult for two 18-year-olds to do at the time. Um, And what we actually ended up deciding to do was to cease all contact. And it was really hard. You know, it was a very challenging thing to do. She was my absolute best friend and I was hers, but we decided to do that. But you know what? One year passed and nearly no contact. We reconnected. And when we reconnected, it was just like it had always been with like all the good stuff in the friendship without all the angst and turmoil. And She's still one of my best friends to this day, and this is seven seven years later. So I just want to, you know, give the caller something to hope for. You guys can definitely still be friends, and actually your friendship will be so much richer and happier than it was before, and all this pain and angst will be a distant memory. And we're going to leave it there. This was the last episode in Season 16 of Savage Love. And as I've mentioned on some previous shows, we are revamping the way we do subscriptions to the Magnum version of the Savage Love cast. You can now get your all-access passes, a monthly pass, a six-month pass, or a year's pass by going to www.savagelovecast.com. The passes will be available starting on the 16th. That's tomorrow. And that month's pass is only five bucks. If you've been curious about trying the Magnum Savage Love cast, but you didn't want to spend the whole $20, this is your chance. Just go to www.savagelovecast.com for info and to sign up and subscribe. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Love cast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 
Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Amy Muse on Twitter at Amy M U I S E. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for coming.